Welcome to episode 64 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's first and only open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and the guys and I are back for another exciting episode that is sure to keep your gas bill nice and warm. For the second episode in a row, we are giving love to a camera brand that we haven't devoted a lot of time to, Roly, or depending on what era you're talking about, Frank and Heidek. Before we get started, let's do some introductions. From Yellow Springs, Ohio, home of over $329 cameras. Hey, Paul, are you going to have a fire sale or what? I think I'm going to have a garage sale, a photo garage sale. As soon as the weather breaks, I, I just got to figure out, I got to get the invitations out because uh, I've got baskets of cameras that, uh, that need new homes. Next, from Gainesville, Florida, the county seat of Alachua County. Hey, Anthony, are you looking forward to election season? Uh, let's get ready to roll eye. We were waiting for that. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, fresh back from cleaning his pool in warm and beautiful Sydney, Australia, is Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. Hey, Theo, did you remember to wear your sunscreen while you're out there in all that sun? Oh, yeah, sunscreen's become a constant now, and it's going to get rolled right on. Get rolled right on as soon as we finish here, and I'm jumping in the pool. As I mentioned before, we're gonna cover Roly tonight. We have a lot of people who are excited to talk about this brand. It's very rich in history. And as always, we have a waiting room full of eager listeners. So let's let them in. All right, we got a perfect 12. Plenty of returning guests. I see Bill Smith. Welcome back, Bill. Hey, how's it going, Mike? How are things in Indiana? Oh, it's warming up here. All the snow is melting. It's constant humidity now. We've got no snow on the ground in Toronto. Jeez. (laughs) You're going to jinx it. (laughs) I see Tim Peters. Welcome back, Tim. Yes, sir. Hello. Right. Raphael's back, too. Welcome back, Raphael. Thank you. Refresh my memory. Where are you from? Uh, Denver, Colorado. Denver, Colorado. That's right. Patrick Casey. Patrick's back from Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon. Welcome back. Uh, Mark G's there, too. Mark, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. I'm from Phoenix. Phoenix. Dean Robinson. I apologize if you've been on the show. I don't recognize you. Have you been on before? Never have. This is my first Never time. Have. First time caller. All right. Why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Dean Robinson, and I am calling you from Covington, Louisiana, which is just north of uh, New Orleans. And okay. I've been a collector, photographer, enthusiast for about uh, oh, 10 years now since the birth of my first grandson. That was the, awesome. the initiator for me. So as um, I, I gather more cameras, I need more knowledge, and y'all have had <laughs> plenty of it. Thank you. That's why I'm awesome. here. I was just reading about the uh, crawfish apocalypse in Louisiana this year. So mm-hmm. no crawfish for, uh, for 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 Fat Tuesday this year, huh? No, cannot be. I'm sure they'll come up with some somewhere. <laughs> cannot be allowed to happen. John Roberts. Welcome, John. Thank you for having me again. All right. Yeah, you've been on the show before. Uh, where are you from again? Uh, just outside of Vancouver, BC, Canada. Vancouver. All right. Uh, and I bet you, John, you're, you're missing the, uh, the Sydney weather now. Having gone back, uh, it's actually not that bad here right now. Uh, we did get a little bit of snow there last week, but it's mostly gone already. Uh, I'm still wearing shorts though, so just like you saw me in your winter in shorts, uh, <laughs> I'm still wearing shorts here. And uh, we have a guy. I'm not sure if this is really your name, but if it is, pretty awesome, uh, Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> no, it's not really my name. <laughs> I, what should we call you? How about Steve Lederman or hey, Stereo Steve. Steve? Stereo Steve is also fine. 
Stereo to Steve. Where are you calling from, yeah. Stereo Steve? Toronto, Ontario. I'm uh, Bill's friend. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't want to admit it, but yeah. Oh, oh, come on, Steve. <laughs> yeah, we're all part of the Toronto Film Shooters Facebook group mafia. Okay. Yes. So Steve's Zoom name is showing up as Johnny Appleseed, and there's a 100% chance that we'll keep referring to you as Johnny throughout the show. So that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Uh, well, welcome, everybody. Uh, obviously, most of you have been here before, but uh, for, for G, Steve, Johnny, during the live recording, you know, you're going to hear a lot of stuff that gets edited out, a lot of the ums, the, hey, you're on mute, uh, long pauses, things like that we try to get rid of. So uh, if there's anything that uh, runs on and you want us to edit out, just let us know. But this episode is going to be dedicated to Roly. I always get apprehensive when we jump into some of the German brands that have like such elaborate and confusing and, and long histories. Um, but it's a lot of fun. There's so many great models to talk about. I guess, like I always do, I'll start off with a tiny bit of history. The The thing that that I think is is really cool about the history of Roly is that it, it's a company that really almost wouldn't have existed if it hadn't been for the oversight, um, not oversight, I should say, the the, the lack of, of sight from another company, uh, which is Footlander. So the, the story goes... Well, first of all, Roly originally was was called Frank and Heideck, and it was named after two men, uh, Paul Frank and Reinhold Heideck, both of which worked for Fotlander around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, Paul was a sales guy. He was more into marketing business side of it. And, and Reinhold Heideck was uh, he was the, the the precision mechanic. He was the guy who, who did the work. He was a designer. He was the the create the creative person for it. Um, around that time, Fotlander was was. You know, they were still more of a lens company. Uh, they were making some large plate cameras. They really weren't doing too much um, with, with, with miniature cameras because that just really wasn't the thing yet. At some point, and I don't want to get into the nuances of it, but Paul Frank would leave and go work for a company that made rifle scopes uh, and other parts for like the military. Um, that company went belly up. He ended up leaving there and going back to Fotlander, uh, which is the point at which he met Reinhold. They didn't know each other the first time around. But um, Paul, having served some time with the German military, had already started to see, you know, the vest pocket cameras. Um, you know, Kodak had the vest pocket. There were a whole bunch of these small folding cameras that have, um, you know, like a folding design that use 127 film. A lot of those cameras were, were nicknamed soldiers cameras, you know, because they could fit in a soldier's pocket. And many of the the earliest battlefield pictures from World War One in like the trenches, um, a lot of pictures that you see that were taken by the soldiers were, were taken with either a Kodak vest pocket or at least something similar. Um, and that's where it got its nickname from. But um, if you think about it, pretend you're in a war in a, a dirty, mud covered, damp, wet trench. You know, if it rains, you, you don't move. Um, and you're using a folding camera with a leather bellows, you know, um, and those cameras were tiny. You know, if you needed to focus uh, the camera, you kind of had to hold it close to your face. So if you wanted to stick your head out and take a picture of the battlefield, you literally had to stick your head out, kind of exposing yourself. So even though the the vest pocket design was was good for, for portability and, and capturing candid photos of the, of the battlefields, um, it wasn't too good in the sense that, uh, the photographer was often an easy target. So Paul came back and, you know, being the um, 
the the guy that had the uh the the military experience he talked to reinhold and said hey we should build something that would be a more effective soldier's camera we wanted something that could be held further away from from your body uh so that you know maybe you could hold it above your head that way you could kind of stick it up out of the trench and, and maybe only your hands or fingers might stick out above the surface or something uh and we wanted something that was um solid rigid that didn't have leather bellows that wasn't as likely to be become rotted uh or, or you know damaged by moisture or something along those lines so if if you kind of try to picture in your head what i'm describing a rigid camera that has a large viewfinder that you could hold above your head and shoot you kind of have a tlr right um that's not what they called it then but this was his vision for the new type of soldier's camera and I guess, you know, the two guys thought, hey, that's a great idea. We should make that. But both working for Fotlander, they approached uh, the management there and said, we'd like to build this new type of camera. And they just weren't interested. For whatever reason, they felt like we know what we're doing. We're going to focus on what we're already working with. And, uh, the, the, you know, the two guys decided, hey, um, we feel strongly enough about this. You know, we, we don't want to be held back by what you guys want to do. So they ended up leaving. And, and they formed their own company. They didn't they didn't initially build what eventually would become the Roloflex simply because they didn't have a lot of capital. They weren't established, you know, opticians. Um, you know, Paul was, like I said, a sales guy, but Reinhold Heideck was just like an engineer. So their first products were uh, stereo cameras, very similar to what, what Fultlander was making. Uh, they, you know, tried to make a competing model to Fultlander's popular stereo cameras, which worked out well. They called it, I have one right here, the Hydoscope. The Hydoscope, it's actually called a triple lens camera. It's a twin lens stereo camera. The middle lens is the viewfinder, and it has a waist level finder on top. The Hydoscopes use plate film. So you would shoot, um, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's something like 42 by 110 millimeter plates or something like that. So this would shoot. 40, 45, 45 by 107. Okay, there you go. Perfect. I knew yeah. someone would know. But this is a very early Hydoscope. They made them in two different sizes. This is the smaller one. Amazingly, this you can't really see it, but this is serial number 777, uh, which has got to count for something. Maybe it was a lucky camera or something. Uh, but this was this was the originator, the original Roly camera before it was called Roly. Um, and then at some point, I think 25 maybe, when they decided to make a version of this that used roll film, it was called... 20, 1926. There we go. Who's saying that? This is this uh, Johnny Appleseed. Oh, Johnny Appleseed. Well, oh, <laughs> since I hate hearing myself talk so much, what, tell us a little bit more what you know about these. Okay, so the so the first camp, the first camera was the Hydroscope that you have there that took a uh, plate film. Okay. They also made um, a, a roll film back at some point, but uh, they they developed in twenty six. They developed the Rolidoscope, which I have here, that had. Um, a uh, waist level finder and this took uh, 120 roll film and the uh, size of the pictures were uh, six by about six and a half uh, so you got like five stereo pairs on a roll of 120 and one mono picture and then uh, the next year they created a 127 version the baby uh, relitoscope and so that's uh, that's I guess that's the uh, counterpart roll film counterpart to sure. the uh, smaller hydroscope right so they just added r-o-l-l-e-i as a prefix to uh, mean this is the roll film version that's right yeah and they had they had a great um feature the whole front of the camera it goes has up a down. rise 
yeah, yep. has a rise, and I think the Hydroscope does as well. Yep, this one so, does as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're neat. I mean, you can definitely see if you hold one of these side by side, do a first generation Rolleiflex. Um, you can definitely see the family lineage. You know, it's very similar. Yes. The viewfinders are very similar too. Well, the the whole the whole uh, thing was that the um, tail. I guess uh, I don't know. Like I don't know if it's true or not. But the legend is that they had one of these on the side, on its side, uh, on a table, and that's oh, really? sort of where they got. The, yeah, that's where they got the okay. inspiration. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's just a. I mean, you can kind of already see that it really actually is a TLR. It's just it's a TLSR twin lens yeah. stereo reflex if you think about it because i mean right. you still have the waist level finder the hood you still have the viewing lens it's just instead of the taking lens being below it you just have two stereo uh, lenses on either side of it so in, in a way the hydroscope is a tlr it's just not how we think of it and right. if you go back to the story of of paul frank you know having this vision for an improved soldier's camera the way he described it a rigid bodied camera that could be held far away from your head. Uh, there, it always seems like I, I've I've run into this before, where when people kind of discover that any TLR, you don't always have to hold it at waist level. You can hold it above your head, and people are always like, "Oh, that's so cool!" You know, go to a <laughs> go to a concert. I don't know how many people are shooting concerts with Thrillerflexes anymore, but you know, any TLR, you can hold it over your head. And since it's a square image, it doesn't actually matter how you hold the camera. You know, you're going to get your image. But in a way holding it over your head was actually the original vision for the camera. You know, it, like I said, as a way to kind of, you know, around a corner or above the edge of a, of a, of a trench or something along those lines. So uh, finally, these cameras were selling well enough. They had enough money. What was it? 28. They came out with the prototypes for the Roloflex. It's 29 went into production. I think they might've been, it might've been 20. Yeah. 29 to 31. And then the version two came out yeah. in 32. And they stopped making the, the hydroscope and the rolidoscope around 1940. So right. they were sort of in production simultaneously. It, it, you know, there's nothing more confusing to me than rollies because they they did some weird stuff when they were building them. Like this camera was made in 1932, and it's a serial number uh, 2170000. Other serial numbers are 1003010101, and it's still 1932. So they they change models and the serial numbers just jump all over the place and nobody seems to be able to agree on what what models are called. So it can get really complicated very quickly to try to figure out exactly what you've got. Steve, if I can come back to your your, your stereo camera for a second, yeah. um, have you? I mean, I assume you've shot that. Uh, I shoot you, them all the time. Do you have? They, they it, all work. <laughs> well, did did the did the 120 did it have a special viewer because that's a non-standard size for your you know your your basic it gave stereo me viewer. oh sorry it it gave me more it gives you more latitude um, when you're mounting the chips in a in a stereo uh, slide frame so you could you could uh, you could play with the with the um, with the stereo uh, window. Okay, so they that. didn't they didn't come up with a bigger viewer. They just gave you the ability to basically reframe it. Well, I mean, it, uh, for this is for mo modern applications. Like yeah. uh, back then, back then, I think uh, uh, a lot of this stuff was in print, like on stereo cards. But did they yeah, so, stereo opticons? But they they would have had to have made yeah. a bigger viewer though, because that's a bigger negative than your standard. But I don't know if they would have had a view like a viewer for them back then. Right. I think it's too. I think I think that still would have been like in a. Um, like you know, an old-fashioned stereoscope, a, right, a right, cabinet, right. a cabinet viewer. 
Oh yeah, or a cabinet. Would have gone viewer, into right? a cabinet viewer or a handheld stereo opticon that you know you held up at a certain I, I've, I've made stereo opticon cards for for years, sure. uh, and that's what I'm saying is that's a non-standard size. I'm wondering if there is somewhere out there a pile of Roli handheld stereo opticons that were designed for that camera to accommodate the bigger negative. It could be, but I, Paul, Paul's correct in, in um, the stereo. Uh, there was a taxi taxi fault from uh, from France. And I and I know a lot of the there there was a lot of uh, rolidoscope uh, and hydoscope pictures that went into those. Oh, cool! Yeah, with uh, I had I have this one that I got modified with uh, with a Rolleiflex um, prism, and this one actually has a different winding sequence, so I can get six stereo pairs out of a roll of one twenty in, in six by six instead of uh, instead of five stereo pairs and one mono picture. That's interesting. So, yeah. So, um, Steve, I have you know my original Hydroscope um, for the, the smaller plates. How would you recommend if I wanted to try and shoot this? Like, what would be my best option? Well, either to get the uh, the um, one twenty seven size plates because that's that's basically what it is. I think that's the same as this baby yeah. roll Hydroscope. Yeah. Either that, or if you can find them, um, there's there's sometimes there's a third party uh, one twenty seven film backs roll film backs on, okay. on ebay and yeah so but you can you could probably get plates for it right you could get uh well yeah but yeah even, even if i could find them my ability to get them developed and everything would be right very, very primitive so uh for now this will be a shelf queen but it does appear like it works okay so i'd say i'd say a third party roll film back then for 120 besides steve or johnny uh, the original roll of flex. Can, does anybody know what type of film it took? The original first model, one seventeen. There you go. Yeah. And what's the difference between one seventeen and one twenty? Not a tremendous amount, but the big difference is the at the time of release, one twenty did not have any numbers on the back of it except for the two by three numbers. One seventeen was numbered for the two by two and a quarter by two and a quarter uh, shots, so it was necessary to get on the um. Rolleiflex because it's of course six by six. Yep, and it was shorter. You, I think they were only eight exposures per roll instead of twelve. Does anyone know what that actual length was? I'm asking for a friend who's trying trying to run a thirty five millimeter roll. <laughs> I don't, but I can tell you that a lot of back then it was a very common modification. I think all you have to do is change the key because one seventeen and one twenty are the same thickness, like the like how 620 and 120 are the same thickness of film you just had to change the the flange so that you could fit a 120 in there so i would imagine if you're trying to run 35 millimeter through an unmodified original roloflex you could it would you you could very easily put the exact normal length of 120 through there i would i would think i have an original period um 120 roll here the steel one and my roloflex original the film chamber in here is actually not actually large enough. Oh, it won't fit, fit at all? In. So okay. correct. I have this one here. Uh, this particular example was modified for 620. Because 620 has the slightly thinner spools. So this actually fits perfectly. George, George Eastman's Revenge right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is like a, a devil's Kodak right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just opened... <laughs> so I have an original Roloflex from Kurt. I've literally, I never opened it. I just opened it for the first time. And what spool is in there? 
a 620 spool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a very common thing. I, I read somewhere that most yeah. of these Rolex flexes that were used past okay. their original um, window were converted yeah. to 620. Then I was wrong. Then so that would make more sense then because this camera is tiny, actually. If you hold an original Roloflex up to like any later Roloflex or any TLR, it's it's a lot more compact. I mean, these cameras grew in size. Yeah, he's he's holding one up there. I mean, you can clearly see when you put these things side by side. In fact, I have a, a baby Roly, the original baby Roly too. And although that is even smaller, that camera is tiny. Mike, Very what's small. the serial number on that camera? 18316. Yep, because at it, it, two, they switched over to 120. So if the first digit's a two? Yeah. If okay. the first digit's a two, it, it went to 120. Below I've that- got, I've got a quick question about those original stereo uh, hydroscopes. Why plates rather than cut film? Was there something prefer preferable about plates? I mean, it just- I think they also um, offered uh, a sheet uh, cut film uh, holders as well. Okay, so you could go either so way. Yeah, so it was up to up to you if you wanted. And a I glass thought I, I understand that conservatives thought that on, pros only use plates. This new film stuff is nonsense. Was it some some <laughs> some? <laughs> Just a fad. <laughs> <laughs> I know a little bit of it is because glass is of course not flexible, and having such a long plate in the camera, uh, such a long film in the camera. Excuse me. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. In the early days, was kind of a questionable endeavor. So if you have this big piece of glass, that's always going to be perfectly regist registered at the film plane. That makes sense. I like that answer the best. We'll just say that's the reason. Okay. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, that makes perfect sense, honestly. Yes, it does. Yeah. I, I don't want to, I don't want to keep going down this rabbit hole because, you know, we, I agree with Paul. It can be very confusing to um, really go into every little model. And I don't really want to do that. But so, you know, Roloflexes were selling like crazy. And then sort of the sweet revenge to it is these two guys who used to work for Foltlander created a, a decent copy stereo camera, ended up being more elaborate than what Foltlander was selling. They ended up building their ideal soldier's camera, although it really, I don't think is how it was ever used, at least not to any great degree. And then uh, Foltlander ended up having to play catch up. And then they came up with, with Anthony's favorite camera, the Superb, and I think 32. So while the Superb is truly a superb camera and, and Foltlander did a great job with their TLR, um, I, I have to wonder if there weren't a few behind closed door meetings at Foltlander saying, dang it, why didn't we do this? You know, <laughs> I mean, had they ever had Foltlander said, yeah, you could build your camera. It, it, would it have still been called the Roloflex? Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Um, but whatever, you, we could have been talking about a Foltlander camera all these years, but instead... Um, they form their own company. I mean, if you look at the Voigtlander models, like the Superb and, and then the Icoflex a bit later, they are so over-engineered compared to a Rolly. I mean, they're beautiful cameras, um, scary to use in terms of the Icoflex, but you do something in the wrong sequence and you end up jamming the whole thing. It, it's it's interesting because they they didn't take the opportunity to to go with the original design Roloflex. And then what you said, Mike, is they played catch-up and over-engineered it to a point mm. where it was just right. yeah, a scary camera to use. Was the over-engineering a result of we need to beat them and do something better? Or would Could they be. have done that all would they have done that all along? You know, maybe if if Paul and uh, Reinhold would have stayed there and, and they allowed them to build their camera, maybe they would have overcomplicated it from the beginning and maybe it would have never been successful at all. So uh, you be. know shoulda woulda coulda, you never really know how things are gonna work out when you change something like that. So 
Uh, it's plausible that maybe Footlander could have been the creator of the world's most famous TLR, or it's plausible that had they done it, uh, we would have never heard about it. You know, there's no way to know. But nevertheless, we do know about it. And Rolla flexes, and then let's talk about the Rolla chords. Anyone want to summarize the the primary differences between a Rolla flex and a Rolla chord? The whiny, no, no uh, the crank. If the Rolla flexes were geared towards, I could say, the working professional and photojournalist, the Rolla chords were kind of like the pro supermodels. So they sort of had, like, again, I'm talking early 1950s. You'd have the Zeiss Tessar lens, which then be replaced with the Zeiss, uh, the Schneider Zenar throughout the Rolly Cord line. From uh, like I owned uh, the two I owners, a four and a five B, and they both have the same Schneider Zenar. But again, it's a it's a simpler like instead of the crank, you've got to turn you know a knob, you've got to turn to advance the film, and it's. It's a simpler camera. It's slightly lighter. Uh, still takes great, am- amazing photos. Sure. And yeah. I've used it in tra- traveling, and uh, I've been to New York City twice with a Rolicord. Whereas, you know, Roliflex, I'd find, yeah, I'm not so sure, but a Rolicord, it's like you, you don't have as near tears and regrets because of the cost. For me, when you're, if you're talking about 50s and earlier, let's say the first 20 years of Rollies. Uh, comparing a roll of cord to a roll of flex in terms of usability, knob versus handle, not a huge deal. The the very original roll of flex had a knob also, mm-hmm. but from from the old standard forward, they were all lever wind, whereas the cords always were knobs. Not a big yeah. deal. The cords had the lesser triplets, whereas you know the um, roll of flexes had the better lenses. Yeah, yeah, but the triplets still made nice images too. For me though. The huge usability difference between the two is if the Rolleiflex has a dim viewfinder, the Rolla Cords is nearly pitch black. Absolutely, it's very like difficult. If you want to, to replicate feel the feeling of having cataracts, look through my <laughs> Rolla Cord Four, and it's like, yeah. yeah, I only use that camera on a bright sunny day. My Five B right. came with some no name aftermarket bright screen, which you know I love, and it's like it just yeah. makes them so much easier. But yeah. No TLR from the 30s or 40s could really be described as bright, but there were varying degrees of dimness, and the roller cords were extraordinarily dim. I have the uh, Rick Olson screen installed on my roller cord go. three. Yeah, Rick's. Um, he was on, ironically, episode one. He was in the first Cocaine and Waffles podcast, and he briefly talked about how he how he started making those bright screens. He actually contracted them from another company and started recreating them. But uh, he does a terrific job with those. And um, you could, uh, he makes them, I think for almost everything you can get them from Mamiya RB six by sevens, um, any roll of flex, you know, if, if it's not something that he has in stock, all you do is give him the dimensions and he can custom cut one for you. But yeah, the, the difference between, an original screen versus one of him is like not only curing the cataracts, but also getting LASIK and uh, <laughs> maybe some kind of light amplifier too. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's definitely a, a huge difference. I mean, I think as the years went by, by the fifties, the, I think the gap narrowed. It wasn't quite as extreme of a difference, but um, I would argue that the original roller cords are almost unusable in anything but bright sunlight. And even then, you really only can see the middle of the image. You can't see the corners hardly at all. 
Absolutely. I thought it was just that the uh, the mirror had oxidized, but no, it sounds like that's it was that way from the beginning. <laughs> well, that does add to it. I mean, you know, truly you find an old TLR, I don't care who made it. There's a very good chance that the mirror is at least partially oxidized yeah. uh, or desilvered. So replacing the mirror does help. But even with a mint mirror, um, it's still quite a bit dimmer. Was the first roll accord were they all the ones that had the art deco pattern to it? Does anybody know? The first one was the Art Deco pattern, and they also made the, uh, that was the Rolex Board 1, and they made the version of it without the Art Deco as well, which was the 1A, and I have one here. So this one here is, um, sorry, this is the one that came after that, because the original one, you can tell, they had a big lump on the side for the frame counter, and it was kind of this weird tacked-on afterthought deal, yeah. but remember, kind of 120, didn't, 120 didn't have the numbering back then for 6x6, six six, so you still had the red window on the bottom that you had to line the first shot up with. But yeah, they came up with this one right afterward. And this is kind of the first version. This is the 1A, uh, where they kind of took in all that feedback that people were saying about these weird design choices they made. Because remember, the Rolex cord was a brand new market yeah. sector. And sure. this is this is the first version of that. Which I, I have to say, that this is perfectly serviceable as, as far as um, yeah. contemporary Rolex flexes go. It's still a great camera. It's just, yeah, it's really, really dark. So I was thinking, instead of just going through all the models, why don't we go around the room? Uh, not quite a lightning round, but let, maybe let's share for each of you that have a Roly of some kind. Why don't you tell us a story of the first one you got? Maybe how you came across it or maybe which one's your favorite to shoot. Does, does anybody have a? Oh, I've got a story for you. Go for it, Bill. Okay. Let's roll back the clock about 15 years ago. My brother was, uh, my brother loaned me his automat. And I've just been shooting 35 mil exclusively at the time. And I, I loaded some plus, um, I think it was plus X or it's FB4. I can't remember one or the other. I got a decent roll out of it, but it was sort of like, I didn't have the means to scan it. And I sort of, yeah, okay, whatever. I, in the intervening two years after that, I got a new scanner. I went to Epson from Canon. My brother was moving saying, hey, can you babysit all my camera gear? Okay. So I had the automatic again and I had it for over six months. And I started shooting with it a lot. And then it's like, oh, damn, now I understand why. And I was just getting amazing result after amazing result. And it was the classic, yeah, I want one. So then my brother and my mom got together and got me a Rolleiflex. Depending on which site you go to, it's either a 3.5 planar C or a 3.5 planar E depending whose expert's brain you're talking to on a given day. doesn't matter. It's still a 75-35 planar lens, and it just plain delivered. And then I got into the whole Rolly Court thing. I was at a camera show in just north of Toronto in a Thornhill, and I saw a Rolly Court 4 for 200 bucks, and it was pristine. Like, it basically sat in some guy's trunk for 40 years plus. So I called my brother and I asked him, hey, Rolly Cord, any good? He said, yeah, they're good. I said, what's the price? What's he asking for? Yeah, 200 bucks and change. Yeah, buy it. Okay. So I bought the Rolly Cord, bought some expired FP4, went to play with it. And it's like, yeah, love this, love this camera. If, you know, it is a little dim. So that was the slippery slope for the TLR side of the family. I I have a, a, a Rolleiflex uh, from the 50s, and I've long heard it said that the 1950s, something about the German mechanical, uh, the camera industry, everything else German mechanical, sort of, that was their their golden era. 
and I and I love it because it has all the German attributes. It's smooth and the optics, of course. I have a curiosity. Uh, I bought this at a camera store. Uh, this is a, a Cord 2A, uh, and it's got a little uh, plate on it from a camera store in Germany, uh, Adolf Fischl in Berlin. And the camera store insisted uh, that this camera uh, was, well, it was obviously purchased in Germany, uh, but that, that it actually went through a, a couple of air raids during World War II. Who knows if there's any, and and the uh, I've run into that issue with the uh, serial numbers that I can't exactly determine. If I understand correctly, this is a 2A. It was in production from 39 till 40-something. And so it's possible this camera, because apparently camera production continued during the war, which I find fascinating, uh, because so many of the other optical companies had to make stuff for the military. And obviously, I, I'm sure Roley was making stuff for the military, but I thought it was fascinating if indeed this camera was manufactured during World War II. Um, lights lights continued to make Leicas during the war. I mean, as long as they were able to stay in production and the factories weren't bombed, Sure. The the military needed cameras too, so you're that's right. True. I mean, well, that's what I was saying. I, I can understand completely that you know I know the Luftwaffe used robots and and all this and that, but be all that as it may, uh, if this camera actually did go through a, a, a an air raid, oh, how interesting is that? <laughs> What's the serial number on it, Patrick? Ah, uh, yes, one zero four one eight four nine. That would be in nineteen forty seven. Oh, so it's post-war. Well, yeah. end of my little story. <laughs> the one A, one A Type threes ended with one o four two one hundred. So you're at the very end of uh, very end of the one A's. Okay, well, it's a nice story, and I uh, I'll, I'll stick with it in some company. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm at Rolly Club now, and that's not to say there weren't periodic interruptions, but the K four B was credited as being manufactured consistently from thirty nine to forty five. Okay. Uh, I'm sure there were, you know, shortages at points, but I don't, unlike some of the, the lesser, I guess I shouldn't say lesser. There just were so many optical factories in Germany, especially in the Dresden area that got transitioned over to war production sure. that um, they, you know, a lot of those companies, the, the production like 40, 41 stops and doesn't resume until later, but Roly and like uh, lights were, were two that, I think continued to do what they had to do because there was value in what they were making. Sure. But I would agree with another thing you said too, is while there's certainly nothing wrong with the thirties or forties rollies, I feel like the fifties is kind of where they really hit their stride. You know, they're still classically made cameras, all mechanical, um, you know, germ there's the reputation of the Germans that if something could be done in six parts, the Germans would use 12. These were incredibly <laughs> complex machines, but it, it feels to me like, the best of the best models are from the 50s. You know, that's when that style of camera was still very popular. 35 millimeter, you know, wasn't completely, you know, in use by everybody. You know, you you look at old pictures of um, when uh, Queen Elizabeth was uh, inaugurated. I don't know. What, what's the right term for that? Coronation. 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 Yeah. yeah, her her coronation in 52. You can find tons of pictures of reporters and almost all of them have a Roloflex or Roly of some kind. You don't see too many Leicas. You know, you'll see a few press cameras, but I'd say the dominant news camera was still a Roly or, or some Roly copy. Charles Bronson was known to use the Roly Flex in the, the Man with a Camera as well, um, occasionally when he wasn't running around with his Graflex. So anybody else have a, a interesting story about their first Roly? The, um, I have here 
similar to the 2A, there's a 2B. It's a 1939 production one. I, I was able to figure it out. And I bought this one as my first, I'd say, semi-professional TLR. I'd only had experience with like the really terrible Weltas before that and like the Lubitels, which I wouldn't count those as proper TLRs if you ever used one. Uh, but anyway, I bought this and I've worked as a press photographer for my college's newspaper for a number of years now. And I started bringing this to the hockey games and I've taken some really nice, some prize winning shots um, and first page news shots, I should say, with this camera over the years. Uh, I've since moved to a Nikon F. Well, that's fitting because most press photographers move from roll eyes to Nikon Fs in the day. But um, that being said, the lovely six by six negatives you can get out of the, this is a Xenar lens. This has to be the sharpest of all my roll eyes for some reason. I don't know what it is about Xenar in this, but um, it's 80 years old, 90 years old nearly, uh, and it still works perfectly. And man, if you want a professional camera still, you can get these 1930s cords for just a song. Well, you know, there's a lot of triplets that are extraordinarily sharp. You know, one thing that I think sometimes people forget, not you, Tim, but other people that just because a lens has less elements doesn't necessarily mean it can't be sharp. You add elements to add correction, you know, near the edges, you know, fix chromatic aberration, you know, and that in the era of when most film was black and white, you, you only had to account for certain wavelengths, right? You know, when you start shooting color through a prism, you're going to have the whole, you know, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon colors splitting up. And that's that's where you get a lot of the, the color aberrations, which um, require more elaborate lenses. But you get a good triplet. You know, you might have a tiny bit of vignetting near the corners. But in terms of sharpness, um, I've seen some wonderfully sharp images from I have a, um, an Ansco Speedex. One of our very early episodes, we had a guy in the show that really wanted to get into six by six and he couldn't afford a role. He couldn't afford most of the pro six by six cameras. And I said, go look for an Ansco Speedex. And Paul's like, hey, I got one. So he ended up selling it to the guy. Wasn't that Michael something, Paul? Do you remember that yeah. guy? Yeah. I forget his last name. But uh, Paul point. ended up, yeah, he sold him the, the Ansco Speedex based off of our recommendation. And that has like a woolen sack triplet. And uh, and he came back a couple episodes later. was like, oh, my God, I couldn't believe how good the images were from this, you know, incredibly basic camera. So um, for, you know, people listening to the show, you know, gas bites hard. I, I totally get that. And um, eventually we'll get to the Roly 35s. And, you know, most of them had Tessars, and, but you could get them, you know, the high end ones with the sonars, you know, a six element versus a four element. And I tell you what, man, if you can see the difference between an image shot on a Roly 35 with a sonar versus one with a Tessar, I sure as hell can. So less elements doesn't always mean not sharp, but. Uh, that's my long diversion to what you said, Tim, uh, just because you have yeah. the Xenar. If somebody doesn't believe um, that a triplet is just as capable as, you know, a more modern lens, you can dispel that with two words. Argus Centaur. Yeah, the Centaur is a great lens. The Soviet T43, I think it's called. That's a real simple triplet. Very sharp on the Sminas. You know, as a, as a parallel to that, uncoated lenses yeah, there can be a flare problem, but if you don't have light shining into it, uncoated are, are to right. die for. And you, you might even argue that a triplet, there are fewer uh, surfaces there. So maybe, I don't know, but, but you know, yep. right. But, but I, I, I love using uh, uncoated. Sometimes it's fun to have a light source in the frame just to see, but. Uh... 
you shoot a, an uncoated lens, especially on a 35 millimeter camera, I like to pair those up with the higher contrast black and white film stocks. Sure. Uh, Roly RPX 25 is a near IR film. It's mm -hmm. not IR, but you know, you shoot the visible light spectrum and you're going to get some dark blacks. And I, I find that pairing uncoated lenses with higher contrast films somewhat equalizes it and gives it kind of a unique look that I, I really do like, but you're right. You got to be real careful. That's where a hood or paying attention to where your light source is, even right. the sky, you know, yeah. if you're shooting, if you're shooting an uncoated lens, even if the sun is at your back, if you have a bright sky, even that can kind of wash out your images, but um, in the right hands and the right circumstances they are going to make great images. I'll share my initial Rolleiflex story, but it's a repair story. My first Rolleiflex was an old standard, and I got it very early on at collecting when my budget was very small. So I think I picked this thing up for like 40 bucks. I thought, hell yeah, Rolleiflex for 40 bucks. But the, the focus mechanism was stiff as hell. I don't think the shutter fired. I mean, the, it was just, it was seized. And I'm like, well, I, I'd learned that it's still a Compor shutter in there, and I had limited success with cleaning compor shutters so i thought eh, i'll take apart a roloflex and uh, i should be able to get this thing going and unbeknownst to me um if you if you think of most roloflexes they have the front moving standard there's like a almost like a rack and pinion system kind of i don't know the proper term for it that but you know there's a set of gears that kind of move that thing back and forth and I don't know if this is unique to the old standard because once I took that camera apart, I have never touched a Roloflex ever <laughs> since then. But I can tell you, if you do have an old standard and you're thinking of taking it apart, it's very weird. Behind the, the, the plate that the, the two lenses are mounted to are these four screws in each of the corners, brass screws. So one, you know, top two, bottom two, and they all work together to move in and out and they push. So when you focus to infinity, they all screw on one side, they screw clockwise on the other side, they screw counterclockwise so that they all move in the same motion to push the plate forward and back. And when you take it apart, you can individually rotate those, which is a horrible idea. They have <laughs> to be perfectly in sync. And uh, I tell you, I, it's a miracle they got that camera back together with the lack of experience that I had and no actual formal training. But I was very shocked at how complicated the original Rollies were, were designed to be able to move that thing forward. But my, my thought was they probably were so concerned that if they were only pushing the standard on one side or the other, it, maybe it might be weaker so they probably, the, I'm thinking the engineers thought by putting the points of contact near all four corners could ensure that the, the entire standard moved perfectly at the right speed. And it clearly worked, but uh, once you take those things apart, getting everything synced and, and back in, in line so that you don't have one, you know, a tooth off of, of the other three or something along those lines. So it was certainly a shock to me and it, it definitely taught me to respect <laughs> respect the people who do this for a living because that was not an easy camera to get back together. One more story? Yeah. Um, 10 years ago, I mentioned that uh, my grandson was born and rather than taking a digital camera to the hospital, I on a whim picked up a C3 that had been lying around for God knows how long and said, well, I'll see how this works. Well, it turned out very well. I was surprised at how good the uh, images were. And so I thought, okay, I think I would like to get another one and see how these old cameras perform. Well, the one I got was this. It was a Roloflex original, and it was the uh, 614, 
which used 117 film, but I was able to modify 120 to go in it with a little bit of trouble, but I got it to work okay. The first images I got were spectacular. The camera was in excellent shape. It was spot on in terms of exposures, and I was completely amazed at how well this, at that time, 85-year-old camera performed. And so that started my rolling bench right there. So a mutual blogger that Theo and I speak to, Alyssa Torello, she's got her own website, Allie's Vintage Camera Alley. And she just recently posted a review of her original Rolly. And um, she hers wasn't in the best operating shape, but she got some pretty nice images out of it. And she had to have hers respooled to 620 also. So um, if you get a chance to use them, you know, just because they're old doesn't mean that they're, you know, not going to still make good pictures. Um, probably, I don't know if it's my favorite. Cause like I said, I, I don't have all the rollies in my opinion. There's so subtle differences between all of them. And I don't know that it's, I know there's people who like to collect one of everything, but, um, one of my favorite rollies to use, we've mentioned this on previous episodes too, was one of their discount cameras, the T really magic. Well, that's, well, that was a cool one. I do have one of those. I have no idea. If you guys saw me standing up a little while ago, I, I know I have an Art Deco roller cord somewhere. And I can't find it. But I do have the Roll of Magic too. Uh, oh, there it is. I see it. The Roll of Magic was the AE version. And there was a one and a two. I can't remember which one it is. One of them you can still fire. You can control the exposure manually. The other one that's you cannot. The two. The two is the in, t- yeah, the two is manual as well. Okay, so I have the two then. Uh, the one relies entirely on the meter, though. So if that meter dies, it's basically dead in the water. It was a um, that came out <clears throat> around the time when Roly was, uh, you know, the the market was starting to shift away from TLRs, and I think they were trying to come up with things to reignite sales. So they said, "Let's make an AE Roly," but uh, it it was not received well. I think it was expensive. It was complicated. It was unreliable. And it's it didn't really accomplish what they had hoped because people didn't want it. You know, if they wanted AE, they by that point I think AE was appealing to 35 millimeter, not necessarily roll film, but they only made the two models. But no, my favorite one is the T. And what I like about it so much, well, one, I think it's it's pretty because it's got the gray body, but it has that really cool location, the Jay Leno chin on the <laughs> below the taking lens with the with the shutter release that kind of sticks out to the side ergonomically it's it's really nice to use and uh, i i kind of wonder why they didn't use that on on more than one um more than one body because you know you 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 can hit the trigger with your your left hand you're supporting the camera from the bottom and the the trigger kind of sticks out to the side the shutter release i should say sticks out about right where your your left index finger would be so um it's a minor thing but uh, i really like these i think they're real pretty and you know they have this one has the uh, the uh, Tessar three five, so you know they didn't make these with the um with the two eights, but still very nice. Speaking of the Rolly Magic and their efforts to sort of uh, adapt to changing times, did do you does anyone know did Rolly ever ponder doing interchangeable lenses? I know they made a wide angle and a telephoto Rolly, or or and I know when but Mamiya was having lots of success with interchangeable lenses. Any clue if Rolly ever thought about it? I don't think so. Yeah, I own a Mamiya C220F with most of the lenses. I love that. Yeah, uh, but I don't think Rolly ever went down that garden path. I think they were too happy with the Rollinar kits. Yeah. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. If you can find them. <laughs> well, Foltlander had a prototype. There was going to be a superb two, 
that at least one or two prototypes were made, I think, that had interchangeable lenses. Obviously, we know about the Mimias. There was a very uncommon French TLR called the Rex Reflex that had interchangeable lenses. It really wasn't even interchangeable lenses. You literally unscrewed the like the entire front plate off the camera and just swapped it out with a different one. But um, yeah, I have the I have the Rolly Wide, which is just a wide angle lens and viewfinder um, permanently mounted to the camera, or you could just get the regular roll of flex and just add through the bayonet um, the bay filter. I meant you know, change the focal length to it. I, I love the lens cap on this thing. It's so big. That's the other thing that drove me crazy about Rollies. This, the filter sizes were so inconsistent and, yeah. and and poorly marked. You had bay ones, bay twos, and bay threes. And in theory, it should have been easy to figure it out, but they weren't always marked. So you, you really had to get a pair of uh, a caliper to figure out exactly what size <laughs> they were. Uh before you started buying filters. Or trial and error. Yeah. Here's a weird one. This is a Rolly Cotter. Okay. It's a Japanese bit made copy of the Rolly from 1938. It's got the same typeface. Same typeface. Yeah. They didn't put an I in it. It's just R-O-L-L-E-K-O-N-T-E-R. This is version two, model two, which uh, these things are very rare, but... Uh, it, I mean, it's a it's a dead copy. Even the top of it, the plate looks a little bit like a yeah the Rolly. Any clue who made the optics for that camera, the Japanese camera? Yeah, if it it's thirties, nineteen thirty eight. This one says it's a uh, Hitnar, hmm. so I, I'm sure they were Japanese, but who knows who they really used? Yeah, there were a lot of I don't know what you call it gray market. People just making stuff for other people. For it could have been Kanaka. I mean, that could have been a, a Kanishi Roku product. It could have been yeah. Azahi. Uh, it could have been just some company you've never heard of before. There was a lot of that. You know, it was kind of the Wild West. Uh, you know, uh, Germany and Japan. I don't know that they uh, really cared too much to respect each other's patents. Although that's not true because Canon, when they designed the original Hansa Canon, they 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 stayed away from the. The, uh, the like a thread mount because like lights had a patent on it so i guess it's i i guess it just depends on which company we're talking about some of them were more respectful of patents than others clearly the roly contour company do you know does it say who made that what the name of the company was that was, the, that was actually i believe the company was roly contour okay um Probably i think that Rolly was contour kogaku yeah. kogyo koki something yeah. i uh, i'm working on a review right now um of a camera called the fujita 66 which uh is more commonly known as the calamar reflex or soligor 66 and it, it fujita has nothing to do with fuji it's a completely separate company and i've been trying to dig down the rabbit hole to learn more about the origins of that company and it's very difficult so uh we we have a lot of good information about the big japanese companies but the lesser known ones there's almost nothing out there you know even sugiyama's guide to japanese cameras usually has very little about some of these early Japanese companies. So, Mike, my my journey to the the Rolly Flex uh, TLR mm. runs through Czechoslovakia. Um, I had never I had never shot a TLR in my life, and was just looking for like a starter TLR. And uh, working through the eBay store of our friend Cupog, I came up with a very nice Flexoret Six, which is yeah. a, sort of a beautiful Art Deco, has most of the features of a Rolly Flex. And, you know, I really, I enjoyed it. It's a little bit, it's one of those ones where you have to like look at the manual every time you go to load it. It's a little different. Yep. Cause it's not entirely intuitive. 
Um, at the time I had, um, I enjoyed shooting it, but I had uh, three different iterations of the Kodak Metalist and Metalist 2. I, mm. you know, I, I had like an early prototype. I had the black lens one and then a, a two. I thought, I don't need three Metalists. Uh, so I sold that and through our friend Mike Novak, ended up with a Honeywell branded uh, 3.5F. And it was a little dodgy, slow speeds didn't work, um, just had, you know, it was a little stiff. So I, uh, I sent it off to our friend Alan at, at Camera Works and, and got it back. And it, it's, it's even though I've got that and I've got a Yashica 124G and I've got the Flexorette, um, it's hard not to just go back to the Rolleye whenever I want to shoot a TLR. Um, you know, it, it really is the, the standard that I have to measure them by. Uh, just the, the, the ease of use, the, the intuitiveness of it, um, the layout, the, the smoothness. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm really happy with my, uh, 3.5 F, even though it's not the fastest, it's, it's, you know, it's not the highest spec version. Uh, I would never know that. Uh, I've never been disappointed by shooting a roll through it. That's why I love the Ashika D so much for many of the same reasons you described for one, it was one of my first, you know, I think it was the second TLR I ever shot and the first that was in good shape. And, uh, you know, it's got a triplet. No, actually, that's not true. Mine has the Yashinan. So mine did have the four element lens, but most of them have a triplet and, you know, they're they're really good too. And it's smooth. You know, that's the thing about, I'd say probably my number one vice about Roloflex is, and it's not even a fault of the Roloflex. It's that like anything, these cameras do need regular service. We are, as I am, very spoiled at how frequently I can get a camera that hasn't been touched in 50 years and it still technically works. Like it still makes images. It, it, granted, it's not as smooth. It's not as accurate. You know, I wouldn't take it out on a once in a lifetime trip cross country and take pictures I can't recreate with it. But there's a lot of cameras that can be used without service, but that doesn't mean you're getting the full experience of them. And unfortunately with the Roloflexes is there's such precise instruments because it's really what it is. It's an instrument. You know, you take these things apart and there's just gears everywhere. It's amazing what they were able to fit inside those bodies, but they need proper lubrication. They need cleaning. They need a, 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 a CLA, you know, every couple of years, like Paul, what, what would be a typical for a pro photographer? How often would they get their camera service once a year? Yeah. Once a year for a, especially a, a wedding guy who, you know, yeah. can't. So you yeah. need to service these things. And if you don't, the Roloflexes are their own worst enemy. And that sometimes they're very tight, you know, unless you have a huge, you know, we always talk about a gas budget, but even worse is a CLA budget. You know, <laughs> they always, they talk about buying a Harley after you buy the Harley, you're going to spend more money accessorizing it, you know, with vintage cameras. If you really want to use these things, you could, you could go broke CLAing some of these things, depending on, on how rare it is, but you get a properly CLA'd and lubricated and perfectly working Roloflex. And I have no doubt that they're gems, but sometimes your simpler models are actually better to use because there's less to gum up. There's less to be stiff. The automatic frame counters are the number one, most likely thing to break on some of these cameras. And I think that, and if you're just trying to shoot one for the first time, um, you're going to have better luck getting a simpler one than, than the more feature rich ones. Paul, this may be a question for you. You know, like I said, my, my 3.5 F is Honeywell branded. And I know that, you know, Honeywell was responsible for distributing Pentax Spotmatics. 
and they were responsible for distributing cannons. Like I've got my Canon dial that's co-branded as a Honeywell. Do you know how often or how long Honeywell was involved with Roli? Because I mean, I just mine's the only one I've ever seen that actually has the Honeywell logo on the top of it. Yeah, I have a Magic Two also that has that. I think it was nineteen seventy-eight or seventy-nine is when they stopped. And and the what the way I'm dating that is the uh, Honeywell imported and larger called a, a Honeywell Nikkor sixty-seven which was made by LPL in Japan. But when they stopped doing it, Roley started distributing it. And it was called the Roley uh, Nikkor 67. So I think it was it was like 79. And Roley, after that, I think went to HP Marketing as a distributor. It was Ponder and Best involved? Do I remember that correctly? Not with Roley. Oh, all right. Okay. Yeah, not with Roley. Um, I didn't even... I honestly, until now, had no idea... Honeywell and Roley were linked, but yeah, yeah Honeywell, I googled Honeywell it. Distributor Roley very early on. There was a company called Burley Brooks out of Chicago was the original distributor. So you see the Roley logo on the hood says Roley Honeywell. Yes, is that what yours looks like, Anthony? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Burley Brooks was distributing about into the sixties. I didn't know that. Uh, and then Roley of America from seventy six to seventy eight. So after they went from Honeywell, they went to uh, to Roley of America. Interesting. You'd think, I, I would have thought that they would have been big enough by then that they could have done their own distribution, but maybe not. Well, they didn't have much, they didn't have enough to sell. That's I mean, true. They didn't have enough products, uh, you know, to keep a sales force going was the problem. I think Honeywell Roley came in in '73, so that would have been uh, the Honeywell would have been about a year before that. So I've been like '72. So I, I was wrong about '78 or '79. You know, we've spent more than half the show talking about the TLRs, which makes sense because I mean that's really what people think. You even today, despite all the changes with Roly, when you say Roloflex to people, I think a majority of people come up with the TLRs. But clearly, they they had a lot of other interesting cameras too in the years since then. But the fifties, you know, by the end of the fifties, uh, their company, their you know, their success had slowed. Their profits were slowed. Professional and advanced amateur photographers were switching to thirty-five millimeter, either rangefinders or SLRs. And, and they didn't have anything else. I mean, this is a company, they're a one-trick pony. They made tweet TLRs and that's it. So in the, in the early 60s, they had to go through some um, sh- corporate restructuring. Uh, early 60s, they hired a guy named Heinrich Piesel. And Heinrich Piesel was, um, I, I guess he was a, a physicist or some kind of designer. I don't know exactly what his background was. But his job was to find ways to make the company more profitable, investigate new products. Um, you know, he had an idea of creating um, a, a six by six SLR, you know, use their knowledge of making TLRs and make a, an SLR. Uh, he expanded their product line to include slide projectors. And then eventually, you know, he was responsible for bringing in the Roly 35, which we have spent a lot of time on. It's the famous, how many dented corners do you have? Uh, but my favorite story about the Roly 35 is that Roly didn't design it at all. And in fact, it was designed by Heinz Vosk, who worked for Virgen. So you think Virgen, Adixa, this guy worked for them. He came up with this great idea for a compact miniature 35 millimeter camera. And I, funnily, funnily, interestingly, similar to the Folklander story I shared earlier, where these guys had this idea of making this great camera and the parent company didn't think it would be a good idea. So they ended up building it themselves. Similarly, Heinz Vosk had made a tiny little camera 
and uh, they didn't want it. So, you know, he kind of bounced around a little bit between companies before finally winding up at, at which they were called, I think they were called Rolly Work by this point. You know, they, they shifted away from the Frankenheidek uh, name. But anyway, uh, you know, 66 comes out the Rolly 35, which, you know, we've t- spent a lot of time talking on this show. Uh, wonderful little compact cameras. Very, very strange. You, you know, collapsible lens. You can't even, once the lens is out, you cannot recollapse the lens, like push it back in the body until after cocking the shutter. Um, there's a whole bunch of strange oddities of that camera, but once you get to use it, they're they're really, really nice. And and like I said earlier, even the four element Tessar versions are fantastic. Um, I know, Paul, you're not a fan of scale focused cameras. Paul walked away. Um, you know, they don't have range finders, you know, and that's not to jump around to here. This supposed new mint uh, Roly that's that's been previewed and everybody's chomping at the bit to see what it is. They're they're designing that camera off of off the Roly 35, but the Roly 35 was it was a great camera, very popular. They continue to produce it in strange gold plated special editions. I think up until like the year 2000, if I remember correctly. So if you count the special editions as part of the lineage, the Roly 35 was um, in production for quite a while. They eventually moved on to SLRs, the SL35. I reviewed one of those a while back. Um, that's the era 71, 72, I think, when um, it just became clear that continuing to make German quality cameras in Germany was just cost prohibitive. So they had invested in a plant in Singapore. So from about from about that era, if you had a Roly camera made after that, most of them were made in Singapore. Right. I see Bill's got one there. Paul's holding one up. This is actually, Mike, uh, an Ipaflex. And Ipaflex, what's that? Ipaflex. Ipaflex was a French department store called Fresh. And uh, they bought the bodies. This body is a Voigtlander VSL-1 Roly, but it's made in Germany. Okay. What's odd about it is it's a thread mount lens. The lens is made in Singapore by Roly, but it's a screw mount. And, and this is going to spin my head. I, I've researched this, and even I don't understand it. You had this trifecta. Of Roly, Sice, and Fotlander, who like from about '64, if I remember, if I'm going to get this right, Zeiss bought Fotlander. The Icarex, the Sice Icon Icarex, was originally a be- of Fotlander Bessematic or Bessaflex. I think it was called the Bessaflex. So Fotlander was trying to make a new SLR. They hadn't released it yet. Sice Icon purchased them, took what they had made, tweaked it released it as the Icarex. The Icarex could be had in either its own bayonet mount or the, the like a, or I'm sorry, the M42, which you talked about, Paul. Right. Then in 72, Sice Icon got out of the, the camera making business altogether, sold, if I remember correctly, sold Roly or I don't know. I, I Like I said, I don't want to go down this. It, it is absolutely insane. How many they, times they, they Roly sold, changed they sold, they sold Voigtlander to Roly. Tiroli, yeah. Well, it was there was a German like camera store that owned it for like a year. <laughs> it was, you know, you talk about brand engineering. Yeah, it bounced around, but yeah, at one point, Roly was sold. Roly was owned by Samsung at one point. You know, I mean, it's 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 bounced around so many times. So, Paul, for you to have a French department store, German made Fotlander bodied camera with a screw mount lens, yeah, I believe it. <laughs> 
it was nuts. I mean, it's it's almost depressing. You know, you think of Sci-Sci-Con, Foltlander, and and Roly as these premium German marks, and um, they were just like struggling to stay on. I mean, the 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 economy, the Japanese photo industry was in full swing. The Germans just they I think they held on to that old way of thinking, the over engineering. You know, we've talked about before how a large number of West German SLRs relied on leaf shutters far too long, you know, instead of the focal plane shutters. There just was a lot of old way of thinking that worked fine 10, 20 years after the war. But by the late 60s, early 70s, it, it was, you, you know, you needed to modernize and, and most of the German camp companies just couldn't do it. Well, Roly in the in the U.S., the, the problem they had was they tried to, their distribution was really bad. They, they had Roy of America who tried to distribute themselves for a while, and that didn't work very well. They went to a company called HP Marketing, who was was a good company, but they didn't have any products. I mean, they had Rodenstock and, you know, a few other Eurogepi slide mounts and uh, Mecha Blitz flash units, just odd stuff that that really didn't, didn't have any major distribution in either the U.S. or Canada. So that really affected the sales of the products. And then they tried to come out with all these special editions, and uh, especially in the TLRs. But the, the only success they had at that period of time was actually the SL66, which is Anthony's favorite uh, SL, uh, medium format SLR. It is. It's really, um, I helped evaluate one for Paul who had picked it up from a seller here in Gainesville. And I'm a, I'm a person who has never enjoyed shooting Hasselblad. Uh, spent several months with a 500 cm and just it never gelled i just ruined so many rolls of film through that camera i uh, just never got into the workflow of it the uh the sl66 uh, is one of the few cameras that when i showed images to my wife janet she just looked at it and said those stand out above and beyond what you've been shooting on the other cameras uh, i just i found it to be a very charmed camera and of course it has uh, bellows up front and movements and you can do macro with it and all the lenses can be flipped around backwards to, to make uh, every lens for that camera system had bayonet mounts on both sides of the lens so you can flip them around and make any lens into a macro lens um, it's just it's a really cool system the, and the opposite the, the other side of that coin at the same period of time was the sl26 you know, a lot of people have not aren't familiar with this camera, but Roly and Cataflex both made 126 yeah. SLR cameras with interchangeable lenses. And uh, I, my feeling is that the the SL26 is is uh, just a, it uses Zeiss lenses. They made actually three lenses for the camera. Yeah, they made a 28 millimeter 3.2, an 80 millimeter f4, and the standard lens was a Tessar 40 millimeter 2.8. And the, the, the thing about it is it's just, it's the, I mean, it's such a precision camera. Well, it's, it's a precision camera that was made for cheap film. Yeah. That's know? the problem. That's the problem with 126. Yeah. There, there was no pressure plate. Right. So it relied on the cassette itself to hold the film right. flat. And yeah. and it did an okay job, but it only, it only kept it flat as long as the camera itself would hold the film under tension. Right. It, and the cheaper cameras did not hold it under tension. Yeah, they I remember reading a little bit. They put effort into adding additional springs, I think, in the 
the gearing that would actually advance the film that it, it would somehow allow it to, to maintain flatness a little bit better. So, you know, you get even a fraction of a millimeter off and that's the difference between a razor sharp image and just an okay sharp image. So no matter how good of a lens you have and, and what's, what's infuriating is you could shoot 10 rolls of 126 on that camera and five of them could be great. It varied by cassette. You know, there could be nothing wrong with your camera and the results you would get from one, one, I shouldn't even say roll, you know, it's a cartridge. One cartridge from the next would vary. You just never knew what quality of images you would get from a camera like that. And, you know, you just wonder why do they even bother in the first place? Like who was the target market for that? But, you know, they made them long enough. Someone had to have been buying it. I would, I would imagine. So does that make the 110s even worse? Uh, The 110 was worse because the film was smaller. That was, that was a disaster. I mean, just, I have a cursed history with the 110. I've uh, had a friend that acquired a, uh, a roll collection and he had, he had, he had six new in the box and I went out to field test them and every single one of them had a broken film advance and uh, it would, it would load the first image. But then every time you go to advance the film, you had to pop the back open and re latch it before it would advance films. It's got like a broken cog or a drive in it somehow. And then Paul sent me one uh, from his recent haul and it has the same exact issue. So I've yet to, I've had seven new in the box, 110 roll eyes. Not one of them has been able to shoot a roll of film. Anthony, are they A110s or E110s? Both. Both. Okay. All right. Because I, I, I've had the same thing. I've, I've got three or four more of them in the basement right now that don't work either. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll load up the first image, but then they won't advance the film. And I've, I've looked at every trick possible sort of, of I'm assuming it's a plastic gear that's just died over time. Uh, it's just, it's not engaging. It doesn't advance the film. If I can, if I can, you know, not to be a complete contrarian, you know, the, the Roloflex SL 35s, I, I joked that, you know, when I, when I, when I shoot that camera and I post about it online, it is probably the most hated camera that I post about. I mean, if I post that I'm shooting my SL 35, people just come out of the woodwork to tell me what, what a crap camera they are, how uh, retailers hated them because so many of them had warranty repair issues that they're just broken out of the box. Um, you know, it was a Singapore made camera, it's aperture priority. Um, but I got to tell you, my, my take on it is the bad ones have all sort of sorted themselves out, right? If they're going to break, they're broken and they're gone. <laughs> if you find one now that works, it's a really charming camera. You know, it's probably my favorite straight aperture priority camera. I, I'll take it over an enemy super. I'll take it over, you know, a, a Nikon with the, with the aperture priority, the camera, the ergonomics are great. It's got a great feel to it. You know, it doesn't matter that it's made in Singapore. And mostly I didn't even realize the bewildering array of lenses that were made for that camera. Uh, but like I said, my friend Miguel that ended up with this, uh, this, this roll eye collection from a collector in the Midwest, he must have 30 lenses for it. that go from, you know, extreme telephoto to 12 millimeter fisheye. Um, and, you know, I've heard, you know, they're, 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 they're decal mount, DKL mount, um, different than the, uh, other decal mount. Was it, was it a Voigtlander? Was there was another one that, that just doesn't quite fit. Um, I may be wrong about that. No, that's but, right. Uh, You're right, Anthony. It was, it was Voigtlander. But, uh, the, um, the lenses, they're, they're fantastic. I've heard that some of the lenses were made by Zeiss. I heard that some may have been made by Mamiya. No, that's true. Zeiss had, okay. So 72, Zeiss got out of making cameras, 
but they continued making lenses. So they continue to offer lenses. I hope we have time to talk about it, but even the Cosina Bessas, the Fultlander Bessas, um, there was a Roly version called the Roly 35RF, which I have a review of this coming up soon too. But this camera was made in 2002 and the difference between, it's essentially the exact same thing as the Cosina made Fultlander Bessa R2. But the one difference was the kit lens was a 40 millimeter F2.8 sonar. And that was the exact same formula of lens that was available on the original Roly 35. So they were essentially making a new rangefinder in the 20, 20th century, 21st century, that still had a lens formula from that era and they got Zeiss to make it. So there was a long history of Zeiss continuing to make these lenses in the seventies, eighties, nineties, and even in, in the two thousands. So um, I would be willing to bet Anthony, that is definitely a Zeiss lens. Weren't the, uh, the Raleigh lenses for the 35 millimeter uh, SLRs, weren't they the QBM mount? Correct. Quick. Uh, yes, you're, you're right. You're right. You're right. I, I stand corrected. It's the drugs. Paul, did you say that you you had the Fultlander VSL-1 and it was made in Germany? Is that what you said? Uh, that Epiflex was was the same camera as the uh, VSL-1. It is made in Germany. Okay. So I, don't take me forward for it because I'm not always right. But my research says only about 500 of those were made in Germany before right. production they're, they're shifted. They're very rare. Very okay. rare. So, so you knew that then. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So just circle back on what I said before earlier. So early 60s, Fultlander was coming up with something called the Bessaflex, a new SLR. They got bought up by Zeiss Icon. Zeiss Icon rebranded the uh, redesign. The Bessaflex to be the Zeiss uh, Icarex. The Icarex came in two different mounts, screw mount and their own bayonet mount. Uh, 71, Zeiss Icon uh, created a, a, an updated version of the Icarex called the SL706. Very next year, Zeiss Icon got out of making cameras, sold Fultlander to Roli, Roli, and then Roli re-released the Fultlander VSL-1, which was just a rebadge Zeiss Icon SL-706, which was a modernized Icarex, which itself was based off of a Fultlander design. And then Paul has the French version of it. And, and that, that, that just happened in like a two-year period. And when you get into the SLs, the SL35 is what Anthony was talking about. I have an SL35ME, which is a little bit later version with the electronic shutter, um, but it still has the, the planar lens. Um, most of them by that point had switched back to a screw mount. Um, this one doesn't, though. This is still a bayonet. But they had a lot of them in screw mount. They had a, some, some of them in bayonet mounts. Uh, it was a disaster. I think at that point, they were just kind of going off of brand recognition there might have been some people who just really wanted to own a German camera, even though it wasn't made in Germany at that point. These cameras just they, they don't have a good reputation. Anthony gets hate mail when he shoots his. But I think that there was just a lot of ill will towards the brand at that time. And and it makes sense why it's true. I mean, for one, the German photo industry was struggling. But when you have a company that's constantly changing hands every few years and there's new owners coming and going quality control is going to suffer because, you know, cost cutting is always in. But yeah, so I mean, Roly's introduction into 35 millimeter with the, the Roly 35, great camera. I recommend that to um, anyone who's interested in like a nice little gem like precision camera. Uh, they are they aren't cheap, but the one advantage the Roly 35 has is they are actually quite popular. They're, they're very plentiful. You, you don't have a problem finding good condition versions on eBay. And because they're easy to find, I think it tends to keep their prices a little bit low. 
you know, they're certainly not cheap, but they're not as, I mean, you can, you can get a Rolly 35 for much cheaper than a Leica even. And they went through multiple iterations before they phased out as well. There's the, the, yeah. the 35 LED, the there's, the, you know, they've got uh, sort of some sort of cost saving versions that came out towards the end. Uh, and, you know, they're all fine cameras, you know, even, even, the, even the cheaper versions are, are great little cameras. So are we talking the ones that are the TE and the SE? So the SE, the S is a sonar, T would be Tessar. Yeah, but you have the, the E affixed, the elect, they changed the meters, so it's like... Oh, that's right. Yeah. And they changed, of course, the battery, which I heard is also an adventure to, you know, find a workaround for. Yeah, I was just going to suggest, everyone knows the uh, the Tessar and the sonar Rolly 35s. They made for one year, one with the Schneider Zenar 40, 35. You have one of those, Anthony, don't you? I do. Yeah, I do too. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great lens. And they had to do that because of shortages. They, uh, Zeiss couldn't make the lenses fast enough. Yeah, we're thankful that Schneider stepped in. <laughs> yeah, and they're. I mean, you can get the Zenars and the Roloflexes too, like the the TLRs. And I can't. I, one of mine has it, and it's just as good. Mm-hmm. You know, there's maybe some. Uh, you know, you, you wish you had this ice lens, but you, you are not losing anything by having the Schneider versions. Now, is it true? Does anybody know the sonar Roly 35s were only made in Singapore? Only made in Singapore. Right. So you cannot get a German built Roly 35 with the sonar. No, they, they made the sonars in the 70s. They moved production in 71. Yeah, only the only the first version of the Roly 35. They just called the Roly 35. Only that was made in Germany. Uh, and then in 71, you're right, they switched uh, production to Singapore. And since the Sonar version came out in, I believe, 74, that means that it would be made in Singapore. I, I would question anybody that, that would die in a ditch about whether the German ones are better than the Singaporean ones, though. Because I've got one of the, just a, the plain old P5 with a Tessa, with a Rolly Tessa on it, if anything. And it produces, you know, great results. It's actually one of my most popular articles on photo thinking. But it's it's interesting that that assumption is that the quality control was not as good in Singapore. I would I would question that because I imagine that you know Riley would have made sure through management that 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 quality did continue. So it's interesting how we do have that constant discussion on whether you know Singapore or German made uh, keeps coming up. It's similar to the debate about the Nikon E series lenses. You know, there was just this belief that the, the series E Nikkor lenses were automatically worse. These are junk, cheap plastic lenses, but history has proven that those lenses have held up very well. Optically, they're excellent. I just think that back then there it, a little bit of snobbery, maybe. Oh, well, I don't want a plastic Nikkor. It's going to suck. You know, I think there were some people that took that same approach, Theo, of, Oh, well, if it's not German, then it's going to be junk, you know, and then that that became people's belief and it just became pervasive and it's extended on to the 21st century that just people assume that because it's not from Germany, it must automatically be bad. And we now have half a century worth of evidence that suggests that margin. I'm sure there is a margin of error, you know, but it's small. You know, I, I, I have a couple of the Roly 35 from Singapore to have one German, one of the rest of mine are all Singapore. And I can't tell a difference. 
Same. I have the original Roly 35 from Germany and I have another one from Singapore. Both the same model, both the same lens. I can't tell a lick of difference between them. Right. And any more, whether it's been serviced or not, is going to make more of a difference than any microscopic tolerance difference maybe between the two factories. Is yeah. a Singapore that's been CLA'd is going to be way better than even the best not CLA German model. Yeah. And I mean, to me, the more pertinent argument is, and it goes a little bit back to what you were saying earlier, Mike, is I could, to be honest, the, the sharpness between the lenses, the Tessa and the Sonar, is probably not that significant. It's the rendering that's the difference, and it depends which look you prefer as right. well. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I'm saying, yeah, I, I don't believe that the sharpness, you know, especially when you're talking about film, you know, you could tell the difference by looking at it. You may because of the rendering of the colours or the rendering of some of the background maybe of how it hit, how it produces that. I like lenses that are, are, are imperfect. I, to me, that's the reason to shoot old lenses, old cameras, is if I wanted a sterile, sharp, technically perfect image, I have plenty of digital cameras that can give that to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's certainly a good reason to shoot a Roloflex. Get some awesome looking, sharp as can be, croppable six by six images. But then sometimes it's fun to get the ones where there's good there's rendering and, and vignetting and some strange, you know, strangeness to it that's a little bit unpredictable. That's fun too. That's, you know, um, Mark Faulkner, he's not here, but he just picked up his first Leica M3 and he was comparing it to his Canon 7. And, and there are people who would say those two cameras shouldn't be compared. They're just not the same league. And I said to Mark, I said, you know, Mark, if you do a head-to-head -head, uh, comparison between a Leica M3 and a Canon 7, the winner is you because you have both. And that's, I think, what's great about, you know, if you want a Roly to shoot those beautiful looking six by sixes that are sharp corner to corner, you can do that. But then get the the Argus TLR or the Lomo or Lubatels, you know, that have imperfect lenses that give you a distinct look that, in my opinion, I think is going to turn more people who aren't, that don't know a lot about film and don't, you know, these are the same people that are using Instagram filters and Snapchat filters and everything. You show them an image from a Lomo, I get why people love those cameras. It's because they like that they're different, you know, and, and different isn't bad. I just, I don't want all my images look that way, but that's why we, we have, you know, multiples of some of these. You know, when, when you mentioned the croppable, I've often thought it's fascinating how the TLRs hit an, an interesting sweet spot. There's enough resolution uh, and you have a slightly wide angle lens. So if you're going to use just one lens, do it like that. It's slightly wide angle. You got a lot of resolution so that if you need to crop something and the film uh, uh, is big enough so that you can crop 35 millimeter, you have trouble doing that. But but mm -hmm. I think that's one of the reasons that the TLRs had such a long run. Sure. Well, because think about it, you know, with a 35 millimeter camera, we talk about this with half frame all the time, portrait and landscape, you got to keep changing the orientation of the camera, right? With a TLR though, if you want to take a portrait of someone, you just crop it later. You you, you yeah. take your square image and you just chop off the sides. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you want to do a landscape, the resolution on those is good enough. You could in, you could largen. I mean, has anybody largen enlargened uh, a six by six? Like, how big can you go? You could go pretty big, right? Yeah, you can you can go you can go very big. But I, I remember 
you know, 16 by 20. I mean, you know, th there was always a fascinating, there was a quantum leap from 35 millimeter to medium format. Medium sure. format to four by five, not so much. But something about medium format was, I mean, four by five is better, but it wasn't as great a leap as the 35 millimeter to medium format. So if you're, I mean, yeah, if you're making a, a bulletin board, you know, or a billboard on the side of a highway from a film print, then yeah, you, you want a big print. But if you're trying to do a 16 by 24, you yeah. guys can't see it, but I have a 16 by 24 canvas print right on the wall above where the, the laptop I'm recording on is. And it's from a 35 millimeter camera. And I'm sitting two feet away from it and it looks sharp to me, you know, and that was a 35 millimeter camera. I, I have to agree with that because interesting enough, um, I've got my, you know, everybody gets their wedding pictures done when they get married. And I got married in the, in the days of film. And the photographer fronted up with an RB67. And the pictures were fantastic. Are fantastic. I mean, they're, they're great. But he also had a 35 millimeter with it. The picture that we actually liked the most to put up in the house is actually one from the 35 millimeter, which needed to be cropped a little bit to fit nicely where we wanted to as well. Yeah. And that's that's probably a 16 by 20 or, 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 or maybe even a touch larger. And, and it's fine. It, it looks fantastic. So, you know, back to the croppable thing with a six by six, you know, give yourself enough space, give a little bit of room. If you want to switch back and forth between a portrait versus a landscape, like let's say you have no intention of printing these square. You want you want three by two aspect ratio and you're going to crop everything. You can go back and forth between landscape and, and portrait. Yeah. You don't have to do anything. You just keep holding the camera the same way and, and crop it later. So getting that extra resolution and the larger negative allows you to do that. Um, and, you know, and if you hold it upside down over your head or around a corner and, you know, for people who are big in a street photography, there's something about standing on a street, taking pictures of people with a camera to your eye that draw, draws attention to you. But the second you hold something to your waist, you disappear. And I think that's, you know, we, we've done a whole Roly episode and haven't once mentioned Vivian Meyer. Um, you know, the, I think everybody knows the story of Vivian Meyer. But you look at just the amazing candid photos she took. And I bet you 90% of the people in those images had no idea they were being photographed. You know, but if, if Vivian Meyer was walking around the Leica, you, you bet you bet those images would not have looked as good. Simply be not. And that has nothing to do with the Leica, but it has to do with your interaction with your subject holding a waist level camera at your chest versus to your eye, you know, cause people associate mm -hmm. even now, I think it's funny. I've gone places with a film camera and what are you doing? I don't want to be, you know, like even now I've actually had people come, you know, I've never gotten in a fight or anything over it, but I think we've all had those close calls on occasion mm -hmm. where we're photographing someone. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it, and it's always because you're holding a camera and, and some usually I can dispel it by just saying, hey, I collect old cameras. I usually show them what I'm looking at and they go, oh, OK, they usually let it go. But I've heard some stories where people won't even let it go. Yet everybody walks around with smartphones all day long. Within a millisecond of me taking a picture, I could have this on Facebook all over the world. Yet my film camera, <laughs> it's going to take me a week or more, you know, sometimes way longer than that before anybody will ever see it. Yet that belief that this is a camera even though you can't immediately post it online and the, the ultimate resolution, you know, there's no AI, you know, in, in any I got stuff. a story. I was shooting with a rolly cord. I was in a Toronto's Leslieville, which is sort of hipster neighborhood, but kind of like former working class. It's sort of, it's sort of layers. And I was shooting this 
uh, the Duke Hotel from across the street. They got a TTC stop, and it was like, bang. So got the shot, and I was turning around, sort of walking west, and then this baby mama, her mother-in-law, and a 12-year-old boy were stalking me for six blocks. <laughs> and she, there was a, yeah, you're taking photos. I'm like, you do realize... The second you leave your apartment, you're on a 4K security camera. There are security cameras on all the streetcars in Toronto. There are security cameras on the buses, subways, corner stores, everything. Hell, shit, your smartphones. But, you know, it's just at a point, I just sacrificed a roll of Ilford HP5. I just dropped it to the ground. I didn't even want to give it to them. I just dropped it to the ground, turned around, walked. And it's like, you know, it was just... The weird thing is, Rolly 35s, they're just so damn small. I can just immediately get the shot, put it in my pocket, and it's like, if someone does, yeah. check, what camera? It's also because it's zone focus. It's zone focus. That's why, because you can just bring it up and take and put down again. You're not yeah. focusing while you're actually no. looking through the viewfinder. No, but it, it's like, and again, this was pre-pandemic. And it, throw, throw the global pandemic into the mix and people's, well, it can get a little more special in this day and age and if it would be tempting if someone objected to say, all right, give them the roll of film just to see what they would do with it. You know, half the people are probably, oh, I don't see any pictures on this. But, but what would the <laughs> average person today do with a roll of film? They, they don't know. The fact the 12 year old boy was embarrassed the behavior as mom and grandma. <laughs> that's even more hilarious. The kids, yeah. it's like, mom, stop, please, just stop already. But let me ask anybody here, um, we've had a couple people leave, but have you ever had an, a negative interaction with somebody while using a TLR? It's always when you're holding a camera to your face, right? I went to see a band uh, back in November at a just a small club in Chicago and walking in, they had a list of things you're not allowed to bring. And it, it, it was a modern sign, like it, like it said, no vaping. <laughs> so it, this wasn't like a sign from 30 years ago. And it still said no professional photography. And it had a picture. It was a drawing, but it was clearly like a film SLR, you know, so that like on a computer, the save icon is almost always still a floppy disk. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, on your cell phone, the phone button is almost always a handheld phone cradle. You know, we've yeah. kind of our society, even people my kids age who've never seen the original stuff, they know that that symbol is a phone symbol, yet they've never, ever held a cradle phone. Right. They've yeah. they've never even seen a three and a half inch floppy. My kids have seen film cameras, but most kids have not. It's called a visual anachronism, a bit visual anachronism. I have to ask the question, though, because now, yes, everybody relates taking a picture with holding it to your face. But back when the Rolly flexors were popular and the Rolly cords and all those Japanese clones and so on, it would have been normal to have people taking pictures looking down at their cameras. I wonder if the perception back then, people just didn't care as much. Because yeah, you know, I think they didn't care. Yeah, people are way way more entitled. There wasn't any social media or anything like that. Um, so, and, and people were actually taking a bit of an honor to be having their picture taken. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I suspect there's a bit of that as well. But definitely, to your point, Matt, Mike, these days, you know, no one would look twice at you looking down at the camera except to say, "Oh, wow, that's that's interesting." I think it's biological, though, because it's it's for the same reason as you could be in a room of people with sunglasses on, like blackout sunglasses, and you don't really see them as much as if they didn't have glasses on it at all. So like as just being human, you see somebody looking at you like directly through a camera, for example, you see them looking at you. 
where since you're looking 90 degrees to the person through a waist level finder, it's less confrontation. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, except if you, except if you're on a plane and uh, you're changing film on a plane, <laughs> and then some right. lady reports you and says that it's a, then you get face down on the tarmac. That right? was he had a rolly, wasn't it? Yeah. It was a, it was yeah. a rolly flex. Did anybody ever, did that guy ever come out and like give his side of the story? Cause I remember when it happened, the dude went into like hiding and yes. then I never, I never heard anything more about it. Like, I'm curious to know like what the outcome of that was. I was sort of wondering if you were a member of any of our communities. I don't know. Well, well let's put the call out there. If you're let's listening, dude, if you're listening, <laughs> call in, please call in. Well, it, it, it's funny you bring that up. Cause I thought of that. I flew back and forth to Los Angeles twice last summer and I was hauling a boatload of cameras. I'm like, I am not pulling any of these things out. Right. Here. Yeah. <laughs> I really wanted to play with them. I'm like, nope, I'm not becoming a security threat. Right. As difficult as it is for me mentally to do that. Every single flight I've been on the past, I'd say three years, I'm pulling out, I don't know, Olympus pen, a Nikon S2, even the, the Nikon F, which has a noticeable clack. And I've gotten some great aerial photos. And yeah, yeah, you do get some weird looks, but I mean, in this day and age, people are realizing, you know, that, oh, he's probably some hipster or something with some old vintage thing. You know, real quick, back to Vivian Meyer. Has everybody seen Finding Vivian Meyer, the, the documentary? I assume most people have. And and I, like I'm, her 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 photos are great. The story of how the photos are found is great. It's just a fascinating story. Um, and, and, and being from Chicago, seeing some of those pictures is just extra eye candy for me to see that city from way back when, but was I the only person watching that movie? Just the, as the movie went on, it's like, she was a little creepy. Or, or yeah, she, I think she had some, she had some anger issues. I think it was sort of yeah. suggested by the kids that she took, uh, took care of. Yeah. There's also a great, uh, there's a great British, um, documentary on her too. I think, um, so who took nanny's pictures or something like that. It's, okay. uh, it's also worth uh, uh, finding. I'll check that out. Cause it's, it's a cool story. I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm happy we have these images. I just was watching the movie like, and there was always an underlying like, God, this lady's supposed to be a legend, but I don't know if I would like her if I knew her in real life. So, yeah. I mean, she didn't get a lot of her film developed. So no. uh, was it purely the act of, you know, to use your word, being creepy? That that's actually what was she was enjoying rather than actually taking know. the pictures, and she was using the camera just as an excuse. Has anyone seen Vivian Meyer's work on the wall? Like uh, been to an exhibit? No, 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 uh -uh. no. I was fortunate to see two exhibits: one at Stephen Bulger Gallery in Toronto, which was sort of a private gallery. He had a curated set of images from one collection, and then there was another one that went through the Art Gallery in Hamilton, which is another city just. Yeah, about a 35 minute drive west of me. Uh, and it had a great series of images, both this, her TLR work, which was black and white, but also her color slide work, which was shot, I think, through a Leica 3F. Right. Yeah, she did use Leicas too. It wasn't all Rollies. So, yeah, it was interesting to see it. It's one thing to see it in a documentary and see it online or even a book. Yeah. It's to see it on a gallery wall. And it's just like, Oh, wow. You know, and she clearly had talent, too, because I mean, I've seen many of her images of like herself in like a bathroom mirror where she would like point the camera and then she'd look at the reflection, you know, of herself. And I mean, just the her understanding of geometry and lines was, was really, really good. And she had she had an incredible eye. And that's and that's honestly something that I need to work on. Um, I've spent so much of the past nine years working on reviews 
And I, I unfortunately don't get to spend that much time with anyone camera where I really get to get used to it. You know, you always hear, I want to get Johnny Martyr on this show. I've met him in person. Great guy. Uh, he's just a little podcast shy, but mm-hmm. he shoots, he shoots weddings with his M3 or M6. Uh, I think he has an M3. He has a, a 3F or a Model A that was converted, 1930 Leica A that was converted with a rangefinder. I mean, he's he shoots FM2 as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's a big of, FM2 fan. But I mean, this guy shoots professional weddings still today. Available light with a screw mount Leica, and his results are fantastic. And and, and the reason I bring him up is that's the definition of. The camera is an extension of him. He's so familiar with them. They're like mm-hmm. second nature. He loads in a film he knows and a camera he trusts and he can get some great images. And, and I would like to one day, with the, at least a couple of these, get to that point You know where I can maybe one day be one-tenth the photographer Vivian Meyer was or, or Johnny is. But you know that that's, that's, that's in the future for me. If you shoot him a Mia Seven, you'll get there. That's true. You're right. The best, <laughs> best camera ever. <laughs> I'll have. To, I'm going to get there with an Argus C3. I'll get there. Yes. Now I, I want to know if I'm in the wrong profession though, because Vivian Myers, you know, buying Rolleiflexes and Leicas and so on on a nanny's salary. You know, is 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 there something I should know about what nannies get paid? I think she lived like very modest. Like she was very frugal. Yes. She yeah. Was very frugal. She lived with. She lived in the family. So. Yeah, I think the the shelter costs were you know not on the table. So in the end, she could probably have used yeah. 3F or used Rolleiflex. Well, and let's be honest, the the expenses in the film because I mean yeah. you know uh, people bitch and moan about the rising prices of film, but when you adjust for inflation, prices today are actually still cheaper than they were at certain points in the past. And you know she was shooting. I mean she did a lot of black and white. But when she started getting into color film, I mean, inflation adjusted prices, she was paying $10, $15, again, inflation adjusted per roll. And she had hundreds of them. So on a nanny salary, yeah, she bought that camera, but she had to keep buying film. And Mm -hmm. it was just so much of what she shot. So it just, it brought her joy. It was the part of her identity. And um, and that was that. But yeah, if 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 you're listening to the show and you haven't seen, if you don't know who I'm talking about, Right now, go go Google Wikipedia Vivian Meyer. Check out the Finding Vivian Meyer documentary. There's so much already out there about her. Her work is fantastic. The story is just cool. If you like stories of found film and how this lady was discovered, sadly it happened. You know she was already gone. I, in a way, I think that's the best way to it because I get the impression if she was alive, she probably wouldn't talk to anybody. So. <laughs> Uh, we're getting close to the the end here. Um, you know, I, I, you know, hopefully anybody listening isn't upset that we didn't cover every single little variation of of rollies, but that would be impossible to do in a show. But um, my like I said earlier, my my favorite part of the story is how these guys wanted to build this camera working for Foltlander. They said no, they left. They ended up finding their own company, becoming one of the most successful camera brands in the world. Uh, they made the Rolly 35, which was designed by a guy who used to work for Virgen, who they didn't want it. Uh, they got bought out a bazillion times. I mentioned they were owned by Samsung. I briefly mentioned the Cosina Rolly 35 rangefinder. I will definitely have a review for that camera out in February. It's, it's a really terrific camera. I know they weren't common. Um, 
most of what I can say about them applies to the Cosina made Foltlander Besses as well. The best part of those cameras is the viewfinder. You know, they are fantastic. Plus the, it uses Leica M mount. So you can put any, any Leica lens on there that you want. Great cameras to shoot. Uh, get a CLA Rolleiflex. If you have a roller cord, maybe upgrade the viewing screen, but otherwise don't, you're not, there's no FOMO. Was that fear of missing out between those? Um, Mike is, um, is that Rolly RF um, plastic? Like some of the other um, Voigtlander Cosina? The earlier Voigtlanders were like a lot plastic. This has, I'm sure there's plastic in here because it's not that heavy, but the entire body is like thin aluminum. So the body itself is definitely aluminum. And one big difference that they did to the Rolly 35RF versus the Besses is they put a much thicker rubber grip on the front and back. And I've held, uh, I've never owned a Bessa R2, but I've held them. And the grip on this is fantastic. It's not sticky at all. I mean, I'm pushing my thumb into it and there's absolutely no stickiness like you see on on some of the Cosinas. Uh, But this has a wonderful grip. It looks great. And although I don't have a Leica M mount 40 millimeter lens, I don't have the lens that this originally came with. I, I, I was able to get it body only. Um, but it, you know, since it uses like an M mount, I was able to just find some other Leica lenses to shoot with it. But it's, if, if I had one complaint and this applies to all the Cosinas is see if you can hear it. It's very loud. You compare this to like an M six or any Leica. It's probably not really coming through the microphone, but it's a clunky shutter. Yeah, it sounds like an SLR. Yeah, it's based on the Nikon FM10. Yeah, so it's 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 not a quiet camera compared to the true Leicas, but beyond that, it's a, it's a wonderful and I love the viewfinder. That to me, that's an Achilles heel. The difference between me liking and loving a camera usually has to go through the viewfinder. You know, we'll I'll have to wait and see what this Mint Rolly is. Uh, was it Theo? Did you find the website where you could get a Ro- Roly logo printed on like any consumer product that you wanted? I think I saw that in one no, of the chats. It wasn't me, but I have seen it somewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like unfortunately with a lot of these legendary names, you know, they get bought out so many times. You're essentially just buying the name. I mean, there's there's no lineage to anything anymore that dates back to those original companies. I do find it interesting though that if you do go to Roly's official website, whoever owns it today. They do, you know, company history dates back to 1920. So it's like the Montreal Expos are now the Washington Nationals baseball team. Yet the Washington Nationals have Montreal's history, even though it's a different city, different team name, I guess. I guess if you buy the rights to a company, you get to claim all their previous accolades, too. So maybe in the future, what we can look at is where the new Mint uh, camera that they're building at the moment with the Rolly branding uh, we'll look back at that as history is another chapter in the Rolly lineage, actually. You never know. Maybe it'll it'll be the camera that reignites uh, something. I don't know why. No, I'm definitely excited about it. So. I'm excited. I mean, I, I don't ever want anybody to think, you know, pen, there's all these rumors of a new Pentax, you know, but it's a They're combination. Exciting. It's exciting because I want new stuff. I absolutely do. I'm not unhappy about that, but I feel like there's been so many disappointing announcements kickstarters that didn't pan out or products that do get released and they're nowhere near as cool as they originally thought or they just don't show up at all Uh, or if they do show up and they're so expensive you know and i get it it's a low volume like you you can't make a profit 
on something, you know, that's cheap, but, you know, produced at a high volume. I mean, Leica's still selling M6s for thousands and thousands of dollars. So there's clearly a market there. I think it's great. I encourage them. If someone handed me one and said, hey, Mike, you want to try this? I'm, of course, going to say yes. But, um, it, you know, my, my, my excitement only can go so high, um, especially when I have enough stuff to play with that that's um, still working. Does anybody have any last minute questions or real, real quick stories of recent picks up they, pickups that they want to mention? I'll make one remark. Ahead, um, if anybody's looking to get a like you want a roll eye cord or a roll eye flex, but for some reason you don't want to get a roll eye, you can go with their number one competitor of the era. Zeiss Icon, pick up an EcoFlex. These have all the build quality and lens quality of the roll eyes. Um, I'm holding here an EcoFlex 3 from 1938. Um, and yeah, this this thing is even denser than the roll eye with equal lens quality. And yeah, you can get these for much, 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 much less money than a roll eye because it doesn't have the name. Go to Rick Olison's website and he'll tell you everything that can possibly go wrong with that camera. Oh, yeah, there's a lot that can go wrong. They, a lot they likely wrong. will need servicing, but they're pretty yeah. reliable once you get them serviced. Shoot and do everything in the right sequence. Other, otherwise, they just jam up. You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out to him. I haven't spoken to him about two years, but he was on the very first episode of the show. He granted me an interview before I was even doing podcasts. He's an awesome dude. He's in Kentucky. Um, so he's just south of you, Paul. Yeah. And um I, he's an interesting guy between making the bright screens and all the work he's done repairing cameras. I'd like to talk to him again, pick his brain about some other stuff too. Uh, anybody well, else? That, yeah. Well, that was um, now you're into the ulterior motive. So I am shooting this for my frugal film uh, project and, uh, and I'm shooting, I'm shooting it with uh, bulk loaded film. That's why I wanted to know the length because it is a six, uh, 620 camera. Or it shot the one, what was it, Tim? Um, 117, right? All the Ecoflexes were actually meant for B2 film, which is the European equivalent of 120. Okay, so then it would be the same length as a 120 roll? Yeah. Yeah, that's just, you can fit standard American 120 in there, and it'll, it should work fine. Okay, so that's why I was trying to figure out the length, because this is geared so that it, it only does 12 exposures, and then after that, it's freewheeling. That you have one of the just post-war, I believe, uh, Ecoflex 1s. And it has, you can see the same counter as my Ecoflex 3 here. Uh, and all you have to do is yep. put your film in, put it up to the top with the um, take-up spool. You open up the little red window on the bottom, mm -hmm. roll until you see the number one, close that. And then with your thumb, use that wheel on the side to um, reset the counter to the number one setting. And then you should be fine. Yeah. So it works great. It's just the end of the roll that was the issue. <laughs> I would so. think if, if aside from the exposure counter, if you were shooting a camera that just let you keep going, you could probably shoot a longer roll of 35 because you don't have the backing paper. No, it, uh, it somehow has some sort of interlock with the Yeah, um, it's the, the interlocks. Okay. All right, guys. Thanks, everybody, for coming on the show. We did lose a couple of people. Anthony had to go. A couple other guys dropped off. For our next show, episode 65, we are finally going to do another European-friendly time zone episode so that our friends in Europe and other areas of the world who can't normally join us during our typical recording time should be able to join us. So like we've done with previous Euro time zone episodes, we're going to open up the doors at roughly 7 o'clock London time, 8 p.m. Central European time, which is noon 
for the central time zone in the United States and 1 p.m. Eastern time zone. So while you don't have to be in Europe to join us, we ask that anybody who's wanted to join and just couldn't due to our normal recording times, uh, take the opportunity to come talk to us and share us your stories and your guests. We'll be doing that on Monday, February 12th. But no, stay tuned, as always. Uh, the topics and discussions on the Camera City Podcast are influenced by you guys. Um, we want to hear from as many people as possible. I love seeing re- return guests. I love having new people. Sometimes the new people show up. Tim, your first episode was great. Uh, Johnny Appleseed, you know, you were fantastic. <laughs> you definitely helped me out with the Hydoscope section there. So um, that, that's always nice to have someone that uh, can, can take some of the talking away from me. All right, you guys have a great night. All right, good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you, good night. Good night. Thanks, everyone. Bye. We're dying in the heat, mate, here. It's already 37 degrees Celsius today. But uh, yeah, I'm jumping straight in the pool after this. Just to let you guys know, I'm getting a few warnings about my unstable internet connection. I think it's because the heat has got to the equipment outside. So good lord, uh, it's melting, yeah. melting his modem. <laughs> you, you look like you. Is it warm in the room where you are? It's a you, bit warmer. It is you've got a glow. The air conditioning. Yeah, you've yeah, got a glow about you. You have a Sumacron white. You have a wide open Sumacron glow. <laughs> The air conditioning is struggling to keep it below 24, 25 degrees in here at the moment, Celsius. Wow. And that's, See, I yeah, thought he had, a, he had a radioactive Takamar who's yellowing his picture a little bit.